This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Linda Jakobsen. Linda is the founding director and CEO of China Matters. She's also an author and has written an article for Australian Foreign Affairs entitled What Does China Want? Xi Jinping and the Path to Greatness. Linda joined me to discuss this article and China's rise to power. Yes, you are listening to 3 RFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as mentioned uh, just before, we have the great pleasure to talk with a, a very important and prominent expert on China. Uh, it is Linda Jakobsen, and she is an author, and she's also founding director and CEO of China Matters. She has written an article for uh, the very new, brand new, in fact, journal Australian Foreign Affairs, which is is published by Black Ink, and the title of the article is What Does China Want? Xi Jinping and the Path to Greatness. And what I love about Linda's work is that uh, she offers a perspective that is very well informed uh, from the Chinese perspective as well as from uh, an Australian perspective, and she's seeking to bring those two together. Uh, so I'm very excited to have with me now Linda on the phone. Hi there, Linda. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for writing this piece because I found it really fascinating and uh, and really a unique perspective um, because we do have a bit of a dominant narrative that runs through not only Australian foreign affairs discussions around China but also even overseas and in America. And a lot of that... Uh, the theme or the, a thread that runs through that is a great fear of China. Um, it's often an opaque uh, nation and people are really unsure as to how to approach China. Uh, but first, I do want to make sure that uh, we cover off on one particular element that you mentioned at the start of your piece, which is that when we're talking about China, we need to be uh, clear as to what that means. So I'd first like to talk about that definition around when we're speaking about China in discussions about foreign affairs and foreign relations, what are we referring to? Well, uh, that's a really good place to start, Amy, because China can mean um, the People's Republic of China, that large nation with officially more than 1.3 billion people. It can mean the culture China, the civilization China, Zhonghua, which is a concept more than anything else, which reflects um, the the very old um, culture and civilization of the Chinese people. And one can feel great um, uh, emotional attachment to this Chinese civilization, whether one's a citizen of Indonesia, Canada, Australia, America, um, because one has that Chinese heritage. It doesn't mean that one um, feels that one is part of the People's Republic of China, the PRC. Indeed, and so then there's also uh, the party itself that governs and rules China, um, which is the the CPC. Yes, exactly. The um, Communist Party of China has been in power since 1949, like we know. Um, it, um, over the last 35 years, has overseen and led uh, a miraculous transformation of a country which was poor, um, in part, of course, there are still parts of China which is poor, but mostly we can say that the CPC, the Communist Party of China, has overseen this 
dramatic rise in living standards has uh, lifted over 300 million, they some say 400 million people out of poverty, and has um, also um, overseen a rise of a middle class so that people own cars, they own a house, they give their kids a good education and they travel abroad and overseas on holidays. Indeed. And in over history, uh, the approach about uh, Ch- the Chinese economy and how to rule uh, China has somewhat shifted. And there were some um, really important leaders in that shift. Who do you think um, has played the greatest role in that transformation? Uh, well, um, for all his uh, faults, and, and he was around during the Tiananmen incidents and oversaw the the brutal crackdown of Tiananmen, Deng Xiaoping, without question in my mind, is the, the, the leader of the China's second revolution, like I like to say, the one that started in 1978 officially, when China embarked on a um, road of reform, of opening. Um, he had vision. He, he unleashed the energy of the Chinese people, um, let them work for themselves, for their own families, for their own prosperity, and, of course, for their country. He was a staunchly strong Communist Party leader. There's no doubt that he believed that the party must be in power. But he had a real vision for China. Yes, indeed. And certainly um, that led to a great rise, not only in lifting people from poverty into the middle class, but then obviously increasing uh, a lot of China's um, citizens into millionaires and billionaires. Um, Now, you say in your article that the Communist Party of China um, is desperate to instill in the citizenry a sense of its own indispensability. Now, um, given that they are the ruling party and haven't been, um, well, they've been in power for so many decades, why is it that they're so desperate to continue to reinforce their importance and um, that their oversight or rule is critical for stability? Well, I think there's a fragility about the Communist Party power, which often is poorly understood um, outside of China. I think people inside of China realize that the people in power um, do um, have a sense of vulnerability. I like to say that the Chinese Communist Party leadership lives in a state of existential anxiety. They're always afraid because they don't have elections where they test their popularity, where they test the support of the citizenry. They, they are always worried that they're going to lose legitimacy. Um, this is a thread throughout Chinese political culture, which goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, this uh, nearly obsession with legitimacy. And of course, um, if we think of modern day China, um, they have every right to be worried about staying in power. The Soviet Union example haunts them. It does. And also, I'm wondering whether the um, the fact that China has continually opened up its economy more and more to outside investment and also the proliferation of a lot of um, Western culture in terms of consumerism, whether that also uh, seems to add to the anxiety because of the external influences that are coming into China. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, China is today such a transformed place if we compare it to, uh, let's just say, 1987 when I moved to China and then spent 22 years living there. Um, In 1987, a person was so reliant on 
the state. You couldn't get married without your boss's permission, and you worked for a state-run unit, whether it was a school, a factory, or a government entity. Uh, you couldn't buy a train ticket without your boss's written permission. Uh, you certainly couldn't move house. You couldn't change your jobs. And people have personal freedom to do all of these things, marry whoever they please, um, travel abroad, buy houses, change jobs. And, of course, this multifaceted nature of society with all the incoming outside external influences um, certainly creates um, tensions within society, which at any given moment could um, explode into dissatisfaction with the leadership. Indeed, absolutely. And one of the uh, the things that I'm really interested in around um, how they've shaped or China, the Chinese leadership have shaped the discussion around its citizens and, and what the broader strategy is for this uh, country is, as you say, um, the China dream, which Xi Jinping has utilised as a slogan since 2012, uh, and that he was seeking, I guess, for an, another kind of renewal, such as uh, that that Deng Zhang, um, sorry, that the former leader had done. Clearly, it won't possibly won't be on the same scale um, given the different economic context that he was operating in. But has that changed? Has that evolved even in the latest uh, China Congress that we've seen? No, you know, Amy, this is a really interesting question. Um, as I said, I thought Deng Xiaoping uh, will go down in modern Chinese history as the man who um, did revolutionize China in a, in a very modern sense. But I think Xi Jinping does aspire to go down in history as another transformative leader. Um, he, he wants to make sure that China is the leading nation of the world um, by the mid 21st century. So he too does seek that place in history as the transformative leader, just as Deng Xiaoping um, basically can be thanked for uh, bringing China out of poverty and stepping onto the global stage and taking the first steps as a really modern, large nation. So, I mean, I do think that Xi Jinping and his China dream, the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation, um, is all about... Um, China retaking its place at the center of the world as it was for centuries, uh, being respected for its great culture, its um, booming economy, um, for its uh, bureau bureaucracy. Um, you know, once upon a time, the large Chinese empire was governed uh, with an intricate set of rules that really worked in this vast empire. So, I mean, they've, they've, they've been masters of the bureaucracy for quite some time. So I think Xi Jinping does aspire to all of that. Indeed. And one of the uh, elements you mentioned there about history and China's place in the world historically, I mean, it was... Uh up there as being one of the most innovative nations. It had, uh, it has, still does have a very important um, culture and civilization and history uh, behind it that has influenced many Western nations, often without us realizing um, that that those innovations have come from China. But then it did in the um, in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, as you say, experience a great deal of humiliation. Um, and as you've said, it was the century of humiliation. I mean, could you share with us some of those feelings and why um, not only the Communist Party of China, but a lot of Chinese still hold on to that humiliation uh, even today? 
yes, and, and this is rather a complex um, topic and sort of a phenomenon which one has to understand. China um, was um, humiliated, subjugated um, by outsiders, mainly Japan and the Western powers, for approximately 100 years. And there's no doubt um, that this sense of grievance that um, many, many Chinese people have um, is real and is based on fact. Now, in many countries, um, there are parts of history um, which are painful and um, which probably give rise to harboring ill feeling towards one's neighbors or the conquerors. But in most countries, um, this kind of a period is dealt with, um, studied, and one moves on. But the Chinese Communist Party, which after all is, um, it's thanks to the Chinese Communist Party that, um, so to speak, China rose up, as Mao Zedong famously said on the 1st of October 1949. Um, the Chinese Communist Party oversaw that rise from humiliation and wants to constantly remind Chinese citizens that if it wasn't for the party, China would not have ever risen out of that century of humiliation. And um, the Chinese Communist Party has vowed never to allow uh, the Chinese people to be subjugated and humiliated again. So. So it's, there's two narratives there. There is an absolutely genuine um, factual narrative that the Chinese people did suffer horribly at the hands of foreigners for about 100 years. But the fact that everywhere in today's People's Republic of China, you have a new museum exhibition, you have a new play, you have a new article, you have a new TV series, you even have a new theme park about the century of humiliation, you, you are constantly reminded as a citizen of the People's Republic of China of that time when others oppressed China. Um, I don't think that is healthy, and obviously that leads to um, a certain kind of rather harsh nationalistic feeling, um, in my view. Yes, and a lot of uh, the experiences of families during that time, um, you know, they still remember viscerally the violence that they suffered at the hands of particularly the Japanese, and often that's yes. spoken about, and it is quite horrific, but as you say, they haven't really had that healing process, and then it's uh, the, the wound is opened up all the time by uh, reminding the citizens about that, that period of time. Um, as you say, this inhibits the formation of a neutral view of other countries, so not just Japan, but other nations um, that China interacts with. How do you think um, their concept of victimhood or humiliation then changes the way that they uh, relate to other countries surrounding them? Well, there's, there's also a mixture there, you know. Um, on, on the one hand, of course, um, that lingering feeling that the others, the outsiders are out to get us. Um, that certainly is one element. On the other hand, there's a keen, keen curiosity, um, desire to understand Western culture, Western nations, uh, a kind of a love-hate relationship with the United States. On the one hand, um, obviously wishing to be looked upon always as an equal by others, especially the United States. But on the other hand, there's great admiration uh, for for uh, much 
about the West and so on. So it, it is a great mixture. Now, it, within Asia, I would say as China rises, as China's power gets stronger, there is certainly a tendency among the people that I know and have known for the past couple, three decades now, that the rest of Asia should fall into line because the Chinese culture, after all, has always been the dominant culture in the minds of the Chinese people and, and is somehow uh, slightly superior. So I think that is a problematic um, thinking um, among Chinese people. Now, the younger generation obviously um, have their own thoughts. Um, the more international that China has become, the more interaction and engagement Chinese people have had, um, the less tendency there is to think like that. But certainly middle, mid-level carders uh, who I meet in the provinces, um, they have a superiority complex towards their neighbors and an inferiority complex towards the West. Mm, that's really interesting because you talk about and write that the Chinese Party, uh, sorry, the Communist Party of China aspires uh, to, as a nation, lead Indo-Pacific Asia. Uh, but then there are these competing countries within that that region that obviously um, not, don't necessarily think that they will be the ones who eventually uh, lead the region. There's India, which is a great economic engine um, in that region. There's Japan, a great ally of of America and even of Australia and then there's obviously us who sometimes I think have we have a more inflated sense of self than um, than our real role in the region but in terms of China's rise in the Asia Pacific uh, how likely do you think it is that they will become you know the uh, the power and potentially even rival America's presence in the Asia Pacific well Amy as I write in that article in the Australian Foreign Affairs um, I think India, Japan, um, China, and the United States will all, together with their national interests and uh, display of power, shape this region for many, many decades to come. In other words, India, Japan, and the United States will ensure that China will not just on a linear, um, in, a, in a linear manner, um, rise to be the dominant power in the region. There'll be a lot of pushback. I mean, obviously, by other countries, too. The smaller Southeast Asian nations come to mind immediately. So it, it's going to be a question of give and take, pull and push. And it, it, it's really the outcome of that pull and push, give and take, um, that will shape our region uh, politically um, and economically. Um, over the next half century. Well, there's a great deal of pull and push at the moment between China and America in this region, and you highlight uh, the South China Seas as one example of that. I mean, how much um, of a attention is there at the moment in a military sense between China and America in this region, and where do you think that's going to lead? Well, at the moment, uh, frankly speaking, military ties between the United States and China have developed over the last 15 years um, to a completely different level than they were a decade and a half ago. Um, there are regular talks between the two militaries. Um, at sea, they've been able to um, discuss and negotiate um, a code of conduct. Um, so there is contact, there is engagement, there are um, visits between the two um, navies and also 
um, other um, visits by military leaders. So it, it's not an absolutely confrontational relationship, but obviously there are tensions, and the biggest tensions arise in the maritime sphere, where China has, as we know, built artificial islands uh, on the top of reefs. Um, there's been um, extensive um, transfer of military assets onto these artificial islands. Um, China looks upon this area as their territorial waters, or at least um, within their um, legitimate rights to build upon these islands. It a little bit depends on where we're talking about. There are several sets of islands. And um, the United States has for decades been the sole provider of security um, in the maritime sphere. So there is obviously um, going to be in the years to come um, a contest between the two. Um, and one can only hope that they will learn to share power in the maritime space. Um, China has built, as I see it, it for itself a buffer zone um, in the maritime sphere. It feels very vulnerable from the sea. Um, all the invaders back during the century of humiliation came from the sea. And, and it's in some sense um, quite natural that they want this buffer zone um, for their own security and to protect their own national interests. Now, how this is going to play out in the next few decades, no one knows. I've always said that uh, the most profound question of our times is how China will use its power as its power grows. Yes, and you do say that geography just defines destiny. And as we know, Australia's vulnerability stems from our fear of abandonment, uh, which is a great reference to a book by Alan Gingell too. Um, but also, yeah. uh, and we did interview Alan, I think it was about four months ago on that. Uh, but then, then the Chinese strategic anxiety, you write, is shaped by a fear of encirclement. Um, and we have referenced that. But is that a fear of encirclement around not just America, but the other um, Asia-Pacific countries that are directly surrounding it and that uh, maritime element? Absolutely. And of course, the whole alliance system, it's not the United States alone, but all the allies of the United States um, and partners of the United States, um, if, if um, you think of this situation from China's point of view, it's, it's certainly a vulnerable situation to have so many allies of the United States um, around it. And the sea of encirclement is always there quite um, close under the skin, um, at least subconsciously affecting strategic thinkers in China. Yes, and Australia is uh, an ally of America and obviously one of the ways we are is through the ANZUS Treaty uh, in a military sense, but talking about Australia's response to China and how we develop our foreign policy in relation to China, it has really been quite fraught uh, and the discussions that we tend to be having to me seem rather unhealthy and often view uh, China as a, a quite a negative um, element that they are pervasive and often under the radar in their influences on Australia through media, through culture, through international students. It seems like there is this an over-focus and perhaps even an exaggeration as to the influence of, of China on Australia. I mean, wh how do you perceive the situation? Um, I think I'm going to answer that in 
two ways. I'm, I'm going to go back to that question about fear that you mentioned, if you, um, if I may, yes. um, in the beginning. Um, I mean, China is such a large country. Um, it's such a different country from our own. Um, it's also a very different culture than our own. Usually the unknown evokes a certain degree of fear, especially when it's a huge country like China is. And then on top of this, um, the different culture, the different um, ethnicity, the, the hugeness of China, you, you have this one-party authoritarian state. Um, it's an opaque decision-making system. Um, there's no doubt about it that um, civil society has been repressed over the last five years during Xi Jinping. Um, there's no doubt that um, many civil liberties which Australians hold dear um, do not exist in China. So it, it's really a very difficult political entity to deal with, just generally speaking, um, for a number of re reasons, size, difference, and then the political system. So when one takes that and then moves to China's uh, projection of power, but also its attempts, and I emphasize the word attempts, because we really don't know how much China, the People's Republic of China, is influencing within Australian society, but certainly the attempts to influence have increased, widened, deepened. Um, it's something, obviously, that uh, Australians, in my opinion, should feel perhaps uneasy about. Though, having said that, um, most of what Australia, Chinese, excuse me, most of what People's Republic of China officials do in this country is normal work that diplomats do in any country. They are promoting their own country. They want to obviously promote a positive image of this country. And this is what diplomats the world over do, um, both consulate uh, officials and embassy officials. Um, it's when the People's Republic of China um, encourage either their own citizens here, for example, students, or possibly Australian citizens of Chinese heritage to stick up for certain aspects public um, which Australia doesn't share views on or possibly wants to stifle, for example, discussion of issues which the People's Republic of China would prefer not to have any discussion about Tibetan independence, Falun Gong, uh, possible Taiwanese independence. There are, there are a host of issues which government officials representing the People's Republic of China do not want to discuss. They would rather not discuss them. And if one does, there's only one correct view in their view. So this, this makes for a very complicated uh, relationship um, within Chinese, excuse me, within Australian society, and and I think it's only going to increase that as a country like China gets bigger, it wants to exert its influence more, and and we in Australia have to learn um, to manage um, this interaction, this engagement from the PRC in a much more rational and sensible way. Yes, because as you say, Australians of Chinese heritage today number approximately one million. So we have really close ties, not just uh, with, you know, the People's Republic of China and uh, the leadership, but also particularly the citizens who have come across to Australia to live here, um, sometimes temporarily, but sometimes permanently. Uh, there needs to be a greater understanding um, between us of uh, our cultures and appreciation and, and sharing. In 
terms of um, the the current foreign policy and uh, I guess the rhetoric that Australia uses officially from politicians such as Malcolm Turnbull towards China, do you think that has uh, changed at all since Donald Trump has become President of America? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, have we seen exactly in the last 11 months a change in rhetoric? Um, in some senses, I think... Um, there's been a slightly um, more uh, clear articulation by Australian government ministers um, of Australia's need to um, look out for its own national interests and attempt to emphasize that um, freedom of navigation is in the interest of Australia, not only in the interest of our alliance partner, the United States. Um, There's been a tendency to... Um, try and emphasize that part of it. But otherwise, I wouldn't say that there's been a marked or clear difference or change, excuse me, in Australia's policy towards um, China or the region um, following the Trump election. Um, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull did make quite a um, clear uh, statement on North Korea. Um, But um, I, I don't... I, I don't put it in the context of that this was a result of Donald Trump taking over the White House. No, it did seem to me a little bit hawkish, uh, than, more hawkish than usual, at least uh, his comments on North Korea. Um, obviously, China having close relationships and leverage with North Korea is an important uh, dynamic in our region. So certainly I know that's been a focus for America and Australia in terms of reining them in. Um, but I just want to focus one on one area finally. Um, you talk about a beautiful China in relation to the China dream, which uh, was Xi Jinping's policy platform. And last week, uh, we interviewed uh, James Thornton, who is the CEO of Client Earth, uh, which is a law firm that seeks to represent the earth. Um, And James was invited to come into China and help set up China's environmental courts. And I was just interested in his mentioning of China really focusing on creating an ecological civilization where the environment um, and considerations around the environment are an important factor in all policy decision making and I just wondered what your perspective was on that and how much you think China is taking the environment seriously Um, China takes environmental protection extremely seriously Um, I did quite a lot of work on climate change issues China's policies, uh, climate change policies um, in the years leading up to Copenhagen, um, and so I was still living at that time in China. I moved to Sydney in 2011, so um, approximately 2007 to 2011, I was I was quite focused on climate change issues. And it's remarkable um, how little outside China is known about the fact that the Chinese government, um, especially the the national government, um, and has had to sometimes really impose its will on local governments who have been less willing to implement environmentally friendly policies um, due to just that it costs money and, and the economic um, burden that it imposes on local governments. But the national government has been aware for at least uh, at least 10 years, if not 15 years, of how important it is um, for the well-being of the Chinese people, but of course also for economic reasons to um, 
protect the environment, do its utmost to promote renewable energy. Um, China is already one of the leading nations in solar, for example, um, energy. And, and generally speaking, one of the push to promote environmental awareness um, in China has been from the people. Um, people have protested when a polluting chemical plant um, um, is next door. Uh, there have been protests all over China um, about um, environmental degradation, um, corrupt officials not abiding by environmental laws, and so on. So this has been both from the national government, from the top down, but also from the bottom up, um, a keen awareness of the quality of life depends on us protecting the environment. Um, so I do think that in China, generally speaking, um, just over the course of, it's, it's quite phenomenal, 15 years, a huge awareness um, um, has been sort of instilled in people uh, living, especially in the urban areas, but I suppose uh, it'll trickle um, into the countryside too. That's really excellent to hear and heartening to see that uh, in some ways China is leading other nations on um, look, having a holistic approach to environmental policy uh, and not just seeing it as some a kind of separate area that one needs to take care of uh, as opposed to integrating it into economic considerations as well. Um, Linda, thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your great expertise and insights with us. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to hear from you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was Linda Jakobsen, and she is an author and founding director and CEO of China Matters. She's also uh, co-written a book entitled China Matters, which is out through Black Ink. And for our discussion, we've been referring to an excellent article Linda has written called What Does China Want? Xi Jinping and the Path to Greatness. And it is published in the new Australian Foreign Affairs Journal, which is out also through Black Inc. So do check that out. There's uh, some excellent essays in that uh, debut. Uh, edition and including an, a conversation with the great Paul Keating and an article there from uh, George Megalogenis who we had on the show only two weeks ago. So I uh, highly recommend having a look at that. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.